The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab a hold of them and open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 19? Chapter 19, 1 Samuel 19. Uh, yes, use your phone or a tablet to get to 1 Samuel, 9, uh, 1 Samuel 19. Those are hardback black Bibles are under every single chair. If you didn't bring one, you can use that. 1 Samuel 19 is on page 242, 242. Uh, 1 Samuel 19. Now, let me just fill you in on what we're doing, just so you know, okay? For the remainder of our 1 Samuel series, okay, we're, we're almost, well, we're getting there, okay? We're on chapter 19 today, and we have to get through chapter 31. That's the end of the book. Uh, my goal is to do this by Mother's Day, so that we can end this three-year series and it doesn't just cascade into 2024, okay? So that means we've got 13 chapters and we've only got 10 Sundays to cover them. And y'all know I ain't good at the maths, but that don't add up, right? Like that doesn't work out. So, so there will be some weeks like today where we will cover a much larger section of text than we normally do. Today, we're covering chapters 19 and 20. So I'm calling the sermon All or Nothing. Uh, That's the title of the sermon today. This also means, if you notice in your Bible, that we're covering like a couple of pages, like almost 100 verses today, and I read it and timed myself, and legitimately it would take me 15 to 20 minutes to just read the text, okay? So I am not going to do that. We're not gonna read every single word of the text, but rather I'll do a more highlighting and summarizing of these stories, of this narrative. But as you're gonna see in this text, chapters 19 and 20 are really one big story, This is actually one big unit, and if we chopped it up over the course of multiple weeks, it would not be as faithful to the text as taking it all in one fail sweep. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to get into it, all or nothing. I'm going to walk us through the text just like last week, and then I'm going to point out some really important things to apply at the end. So here we go, 1 Samuel chapter 19, look with me at verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan's son Saul delighted much in David. So this is the introduction to today's text, and all three of the main characters are introduced in that first verse. Real quick, for context's sake, first, King Saul. King Saul is Israel's first king, and if you remember to uh, two years ago almost, the start of of his reign was really good. He started really well as Israel's first king, but then in multiple cases, he rebelled against God in disobedience. He was unwilling to repent and turn. And we said about King Saul, this is the summation. In this life, you will either say, thy will be done or my will be done. That's what we said. That's a summation of Saul's life. And Saul has shown that he is much more concerned with his own will rather than the will of God. And so, so that's our first character, King Saul. The second character introduced is Jonathan, who's Saul's son, his eldest son. Saul is, uh, I mean, Jonathan is a, he is a young, valiant, godly warrior. 
This is a good young guy. He is the heir apparent to his father's throne. But a few weeks ago, we saw that after recognizing, seeing what David did against Goliath, when David kills Goliath, uh, Jonathan becomes convinced that David is actually destined to be the next king of Israel. And and he forms this deep, loving friendship. He honors David by giving him his princely robes and his sword, his armor. He he essentially just secedes the throne to this guy. So that's Jonathan. And then finally, David. David will be Israel's second king. He's not King David yet. He's just David. Right now, he's just this young man in King Saul's military service. And and after killing Goliath, uh, he has won the favor of all of Israel. All of Israel now knows who David is and they're into this guy. He has also won the friendship of Jonathan, okay, the king's son. And then last week we saw that he even won the hand of Michael, the the, the youngest daughter of Saul. And now he has married her and is the king's son-in-law. So he's established himself in this story. And what we just read in verse one is that Saul hates David. Saul hates David. David and the fact that he is on the upward kind of track of the who's who's of Israel. He hates this. He realizes that David is is now a legitimate threat to his throne. And, And so in verse one, we see that for the very first time, Saul is making known his murderous intent. We've known it because we've read it and we've had the benefit of the narrator telling us the intentions of Saul's heart. But for the first time publicly, he's making his murderous intent known to Jonathan, his son, and to his servants. He's revealing his intent to this inner circle. Now, what happens next in verses two through five is that Jonathan tries to convince his father not to kill David. He will try and convince his father not to kill David. And his, his, his tactics is, he says... Hey, David is actually, his deeds have actually gone to serve Saul and the kingdom. He's brought you good, dad, and so you shouldn't kill him. And then in verse six, so look down to verse six, this is Saul's response. Saul listened to the voice of his son, Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death, okay? So for the moment, Saul's hand is stayed. For the moment, he's going to let David live. And David returns to Saul's service. And ongoing, there's another battle with the Philistines. And David just crushes them. He just creams the Philistines again. And that pesky, harmful spirit shows back up on Saul. Shows back up on Saul. And then look down to verse 10, because this is what his response is. Only a few verses later. Verse 10, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. So that's strike three, if you remember. That's strike three. This is the third time that Saul has tried to kill David with a sharp pointy object. Not to mention his kind of underhanded methods of trying to get David killed in battle, but that's it. This is strike three, David is out. He is running for his life. That's what the text just told us. Now, in verses 11 through 17, in the next little section, Saul tries to kill David again, but this time he runs home. He goes to his new bride, Michael. He goes home to his wife and his wife warns him. 
Michael warns David, and they essentially do the stuffed body trick. They do the stuffed kind of body in the bed trick. Think of Lord of the Rings, right? The hobbits are getting all stabbed up, but there's just like pillows or Ferris Bueller's day off. Okay, remember dead, dead body in the, in the room kind of thing. Whatever generation you're in, you've seen this before, the stuffed body trick. So Michael lets David out of the window. They fill the bed with a fake body and she tells her father's servants that David is sick. She says, my husband's sick in bed, he can't come. And here's Saul's response. Look at verse 15. Then Saul sent messengers to, to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. He's like, I don't care he's sick. Get him up here. Bring his bed. Bring him in the bed so that I can kill him. Well, they find the dummy, right? Just like, I mean, you kind of expect it. They find the dummy, they report to Saul, and now he's furious with his daughter because remember, she loves David. Everyone is out to get Saul now in his mind, even his own family. You'll see this play out in the upcoming verses, but now David is legitimately on the run. He's, he, is, he knows that Saul is out to kill him and he runs uh, to the prophet Samuel. So in verses 18 through 24, uh, when Saul sends men to capture him, he shows up to the prophet Samuel. And this is weird little encounter with Samuel and the prophets where they're prophesying and the spirit of God comes upon them. They're prophesying. And then the men from Saul run out to try and capture David and the spirit of God rushes on them and they start prophesying. And then Saul's like, what is happening? They're co-opting my men with prophecy. And then Saul runs out there and Saul starts prophesying. It's like, it's like they're bewitched by the spirit and they're unable to capture David. That's what happens at the end of chapter 19. But then in chapter 20, something really interesting happens. And we're gonna spend a little bit more time in this chapter. David goes back to his friend, Jonathan. He runs back to his friend, Jonathan, and essentially asks him, bro, what have I done? Like, what have I done that your dad is so intent on killing me? And here's Jonathan's response. Look at chapter 20, verses two through four. So Jonathan said to David, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again and saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So like Jonathan doesn't believe it. He thinks that he convinced his dad not to kill David, but David is adamant. He's like, listen, dude, I am one step away from death. I am but one step away from death. And Jonathan's response is, all right, what do you want to do? Whatever you say, what do you, what do you want to do? And here's the plan that they hatch. David will skip the next monthly banquet that Saul calls for all of his generals to attend. Okay, and when Saul asks Jonathan where David is at that banquet, Jonathan will tell him that David had a family issue arise and they'll figure that if Saul gets furious that David isn't there, that shows that he has plans to kill David. 
That's the plan they hatch, okay? They come up with a signal so that Jonathan can communicate to David what happens at the banquet, and then the plan is executed. And we're gonna read this whole thing, verses 27 through 34. This is our long section for the morning. So look at verse 27. On the second day, this is the second day of that feast, of that banquet. On the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, he said. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, David has not come to the king's table. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food for the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. First thing to note, David cannot throw a spear. This must be why he did not battle Goliath, because that's four misses, all right? I mean, significant bad, bad, bad arm action or something, okay? But that's, that, they have, that's the, the, the plan. Jonathan now knows without a shadow of a doubt, Saul became furious, and his response to Jonathan's pushback, I mean, he, it's the, equiv- the ancient Near Eastern equivalent to cussing somebody out. I mean, that's what happens, right? They don't flow quite as smoothly as our cuss words, but like, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, right? You know what that means, don't you? <laughs> try, try that this week, okay? When you get angry at somebody, try that this week and see if that flows. Uh, it won't, but I mean, you can say your pastor told you to. It's biblical, okay? But, <laughs> but, but he makes his heart and his motives quite plain in verse 31. His motives are quite plain in verse 31. He says, As long as David lives, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. That's what he's worried about. He's worried about his lineage. He's worried about his kingdom, his name, even his son's name. And Jonathan pushes back a little bit. He's like, what has he even done? Tell me what this guy has done. And then Saul takes a spear and throws it at his own son. So they have their answer. Everybody knows at this point, Saul wants David dead. So the text goes on. Saul goes, I mean, uh, Jonathan goes out to David and uh, David's hiding in the woods, maybe 30 miles or so away. And they have this little prearranged signal. Okay. Jonathan is going to shoot some arrows out into a field and he tells his servant boy to go and retrieve them. And, And the plan is if he tells the boy, the arrows are beyond you, then that means David is in danger. 
But if he says, hey, the arrows are in front of you, then that means that David's life is safe. So he shoots the arrows and he says to the boy, the arrows are way beyond you, keep going. So David knows that he in fact is in mortal danger from Saul. And then at the end of this chapter, uh, we find the parting scene of David and his friend, Jonathan. It is a sad scene. These are two best friends And while this isn't their exact last time together, they really aren't gonna have much more time together before Jonathan's untimely death. We'll get there in a few chapters, but let's look at the last two verses of this chapter, verses 41 and 42. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. So that's two chapters, two chapters. And and in wrestling with how to apply this for us, there, uh, there's, a, there's a real surface level application that I could have spent time on, okay? And gosh, there's so many important and good things in here about friendship, right? about community, about having somebody to have your back, about how to see through false falsities in other people. I mean, there's lots in this text, um, but actually if I had preached that, it could be considered a bit redundant because Joel preached on that idea a couple weeks ago when we talked about David and Jonathan's friendship. But, but I do think that there's actually something much deeper going on in this section that we would miss if we only stayed on the surface and talked about friendship or community. Because uh, we talked about this back in chapter 16, but in the Old Testament, uh, David functions as uh, somebody who points to something else, a reflection or a mirror. He, he is a, a, a shadow for something that would come down the road. And this is known biblically as a Christological typology. We talked about this a number of weeks ago, that David is a type, he is typological of the coming Christ. And what that means is that in David's story, we see shadows that will find their substance ultimately in Jesus Christ. So what I wanna do with the remainder of our time today is look at how that story, those two chapters are a reflection of something much bigger for us to consider. So let's hammer into this, okay? In, in 1 Samuel, actually starting in chapter 18, but 18 through 20, the writer is using the stories of Saul and Jonathan to illustrate two ways we might respond when God reveals his true king. Okay, they both realize that David is the true king, that David is next in line, that David is kind of destined by God to become Israel's king. God's true king has been revealed, but they respond in two polar opposite ways, Jonathan and Saul. And I think 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 31 accurately sums up Saul's response. This is the text. He says, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore bring him to me for the man shall surely die. That sums it up for Saul. The most important thing for Saul 
is his kingdom. It's the most important thing. It's the thing he'd be willing to sin to protect. Right? It's the thing he'd be, he'd, he'd be willing to lie about to protect. It's the thing that he would use his family and his friends, even the relationship with his son and his daughter to protect. And ultimately, his kingdom is the thing that he would murder someone to protect. He tries to kill David to keep God's true king off of his throne. And this is one way that we can respond to the true king. We can respond with this hostile resistance. We can respond this way too. And I'm pretty sure, honestly, if I'm honest, I'm pretty sure that that's how I've responded to almost every confrontation with Jesus, with the true king, at least at first. Like every single time in my life that I have been confronted by Jesus over something in my life, I've almost always been hostilely resistant to it at first. I'll give you some examples. I remember the first time that I was confronted in high school with the fact that I couldn't hang out with the same friends that I used to hang out with once I became a Christian. It was a confrontation. I couldn't hang out with the same friends that I hung out with before I was a Christian because I couldn't keep doing the same things that I used to do because I wasn't the same person that I used to be. And frankly, whenever I hung out with those guys, I just got drugged right back into the same old stuff all the time. And it wasn't until a youth leader challenged me and, and he told me, he, he, he told me that if I recognized that Jesus was the true king, I was going to need to surround myself with some new friends. These are the, his exact words. I'm sure he stole them and it's been preached a million times, but his words to me, and I remember until the day that I die, he said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Show me your friends and I'll show you a picture of your future. But listen, they were my friends and I didn't like fully give up on them, but man, I, I bucked hard against that. that I resisted. I resisted. Another example. I remember the first time for me in college uh, when I was confronted with this. Man, you shouldn't be looking at porn now that you're a Christian. I had never thought that thought until my freshman year of college. And I remember that that was, it felt like a conflict in my heart because that was going to be a difficult one to follow. It was gonna be a difficult one because how was I supposed to break a habit that I had started when I was in fifth grade? How was I gonna break this thing off? I didn't know it at the time, but my brain had to literally be rewired. And I made all the excuses. This isn't really hurting anyone. Actually, this is me protecting myself and others from, from me being sexually active with, with girls. I made that excuse. This is just my burden to bear. It's just, it's, it's not a big deal. It was a hostile resistance. It was me resisting to what I knew that the true king wanted from me. And then even later in life, when Marcy and I got married, 
she was raised in the church. I was not raised in the church. One of her non-negotiables that we talked about in premarital counseling was that we were gonna give our first 10% of our finances to our church. That was her non, I mean, I remember sitting with our counselor and being like, say what? I mean, I don't make much, but 10%, you, sh- you, you sure? And it, it, was, it was a resistance. I immediately felt resistance because listen, I needed that cash. I was paying off a big rock on her hand, right? <laughs> and listen, uh, Marcy by nature is just far more generous than I am. And so, so I mean, I wanted to marry her, so I gave in, but, 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 <laughs> but listen, we gave. We gave 10% when I was making 18K as a youth pastor. And I resisted in my heart the whole way. And we gave when we weren't sure how we were going to pay our bills because we were in between jobs. And I was hostile towards God demanding that from me in my heart. And listen, I still give today. And I'll tell you this, I still feel the, the crumbling of my heart under the pressure of, man, do you know what I could buy with that money? That's a different car. That's a different house. That's a different neighborhood. That's a different tax bracket kind of. And it's hostile resistance. And maybe as I say those things, you're like, well, pastor, that seems a bit harsh. Like you're kind of, I mean, that's not being hostile to Jesus. You're taking those things way too seriously. And I would just push back on that. I'll just push back on that and remind you of one event in Jesus' life. On on the last week of his life to inaugurate this final week before he was killed on Palm Sunday, he enters, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. You might know the story. He enters the city of Jerusalem and the crowds freak out. They flip out. They start cutting palm branches and laying them before him. They take their cloaks off and lay them before him. He's riding in on a donkey and they usher him in as the Messiah. And they say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. What's happening there? They are recognizing that Jesus is the true king the son of David. He's the true king. He's the substance. David was the shadow. He's the substance and they are worshiping him. But the true king turned out not to be what they had hoped. Remember this? They wanted a conquering king, not a king who would suffer and die. And when they saw that that was actually the path he was taking, this crowd who on Sunday chanted, Hosanna to the son of David, to the true king, they would chant a very different message on Friday. The same crowd. The same crowd that was worshiping him on Palm Sunday by Friday was calling for his crucifixion. How do you make that shift? How do you make the shift from Worship to calling for his death. It's hostility. It's resistance. Any confrontation from the true king that does not lead you to change can quickly move from excitement to indifference and then ultimately to hostility. So each one of those things in my life, each one of those things in your life, if not submitted to the true king, it can and might and maybe even will lead you to reject him wholly. This is what happened with Saul. Hostile resistance. 
But these chapters juxtapose then how Jonathan responds to the true king. And while there are many verses, many more verses to point to Jonathan's response to David, I think 1 Samuel 20 verse four sums it up best for me. Verse four, then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. Tell me that's not the, the best verse for Christian discipleship. Whatever you say, that's what I'm gonna do. Jonathan gladly bows the knee to David, even though to do so meant that he had to give up all of his claims to the throne. Even though to do so would cause a lot of strain and ultimately the fracturing of his entire family. His response to the true king is whatever, whatever you want. That's what I want to do. See, Saul, we saw this hostile resistance, but with Jonathan, it's humble surrender. It's humble surrender. Jonathan is a picture for us of what it means to surrender to Jesus as king, to surrender to the true king. Jesus said, come to me, come to me. But if you come to me, you have to be willing to walk away from your throne. You have to be willing to forsake everything if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow the true king. You have to be willing to forsake your families, to forsake your your finances, to forsake your sin struggles, to forsake even your successes in this life. The the text, the Bible, Jesus will even call you to forsake your very life if you want to follow him. And listen, I'm not saying that wanting a good marriage or healthy finances or even having success in this world is a bad thing, but those things cannot be the first thing. Jesus teaches us that we have to hate those things. Think I'm making that up? That's not too strong of a language. Remember this verse, Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That seems harsh. Is he just exaggerating a bit? Like, what does Jesus mean here? I gotta hate my family? Really? I gotta hate myself? What about self-care, Jesus? Doesn't seem very good for my self-esteem. Tim Keller Yoda, right? Tim Keller, uh, pastor in New York City, he calls this comparative hate, not active hate. I've talked about this before, but we aren't to actively hate our family and ourselves and our jobs and our, we aren't to actively hate, but comparatively hate those things. So you wanna know the price of following Jesus it's, it's this devotion and love and obedience and reverence to, that makes every other relationship in our lives comparatively look like hate. So I illustrated like this before. Uh, imagine you have a pet. You have a pet. I have a couple of dogs. Uh, I love my dogs. I guess that you would love your pet too, unless it's a cat. 
in which case you're just waiting for that thing to die. <laughs> Patiently, long-suffering, waiting for that thing to die so that you can get a real pet like a dog <laughs> or a hamster or a lizard, okay? Anything but a cat. But I imagine even cat people love their cats, all right? And, and, and if you love your, your pet, you're committed to it at some level, right? You feed it and you care for it and you walk it and you do the things that you do. You spend probably a lot of money. If you're really insane, you buy it clothes, right? Like things like that. But I would imagine that as committed as you are to that pet, your love for that pet pales in comparison to your love for your children or for your spouse or for your friends. And if you had to think about that, that's a bad thing, right? Comparatively, For all of us, if there were some situation where you had to choose between the life of your pet or the life of your kid, it is no contest. You're committed to your pet, but the commitment intensity in comparison to the commitment to your own family or close friends, your commitment to that pet would seem comparatively to look like hate. That's what Jesus is talking about here. God's not calling you to actively hate your own family or even yourself. He's just saying, if you want to be my follower, if you want to follow me, the price is loyalty to him over everything. Your love for Christ will make every other love in your life look like hate comparatively. And this is why Saul is so upset. Remember verse 30? You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Here's his next words. Do I not know that you have chosen this son of Jesse, the true king, over me? Over us, over your own flesh and blood? That's why he's so pissed. Church, this text is ultimately about how we respond to the true king. And the Bible says it's all or nothing. These chapters say it's all or nothing. There are only two choices. There are only two choices. There's two choices given. You either bow before him and surrender or you call out for his crucifixion. How do you respond when you see the true king, when the true king is revealed to you. You try to kill him lest he encroaches on your kingdom, on your claim to the throne? Or do you give him everything? Whatever you say, you give him everything as a pledge of your unswavering, unfaulting allegiance to him. This is how the true king calls people to follow him. And guys, it's hard. This is why Jesus says that the the road is not wide, but it's narrow. Few will enter through the narrow path, through the narrow gate. His, His disciples are even like, you know, that sounds impossible. And Jesus is like, yeah. With man it is, but with God all things are possible. 
G.K. Chesterton famously says this about Christianity. He says, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it's been found difficult and left untried. So I have two questions as we close up today. First, have you surrendered? Have you surrendered to God? God has brought some of you to this church on this Sunday, listening to this sermon, and he is intentionally saying to you, it's time to stop resisting. It's, it's time to stop running. It's time to put down your weapons of hostility and surrender to me. It shouldn't take you too long of running your own life to realize you're not very good at it. I mean, don't you realize how, how meaningless life is without him? Haven't you felt the emptiness of running after and pursuing your own kingdom? I would say for some of you today, today's the day for you to lay down that yes, for you to surrender your life to the true king. Have you surrendered? I'll tell you how to, if you've not. This is your prayer. Jesus I surrender all to you. That's the first step. Have you surrendered? And then the second question, for those of you who have, I ask you this, are you surrendered? Are you still surrendered? Because this kind of surrender isn't something that you just do one time and then you're like, good, it's something you have to do over and over and over, weekly, daily, sometimes hourly, you've got to surrender those things to him. You have to surrender. Maybe, maybe you've surrendered at some point, but are you still resisting him in some way? Goodness, maybe it's your friends. They just keep pulling you back to do the things that you used to do. Maybe it's some sort of addiction. Man, mine was to this porn that took years to break. So maybe it's sexual, but maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's drink and you just can't seem to break it. You can't seem to surrender it. Maybe it's your money and you just, listen, you're digging. And I know it, man, filling up that tank, buying eggs. They're like made of gold now. But you're just digging in your heels to what the true king would want from you in terms of generosity. Maybe it's something wildly different from anything that I've illustrated with, but maybe today you realize, hey, there's a part of me that's still resisting him. I have surrendered, but man, I'm not currently surrendered in this area or in that area. And for, for you today, listen, you need to cry out with the exact same prayer. It's not just you white knuckling and just like making a commitment to yourself to, to stop doing those things. It's you surrendering prayerfully to him and saying, God, I surrender all to you. This thing, this addiction, this anger, this guilt, this shame, I'm gonna give it to you. I'm not gonna let it hold on to me anymore. By the power of your spirit, release me from this. That's the call. 
Have you surrendered and are you surrendered? Because the Bible says it's all or nothing. So church, I want us to move from hostility to humility. I want us to move from this resistance to surrender. God will stop at nothing to get you. You think you're here on accident today? He's running after you. He's got your scent. He's on your tail. He's closer than you might even think. And he will stop at nothing to pursue you and to cause you to stop and to turn and to worship. He's relentless in his pursuit of those who he loves. And he loves you. Will you surrender? Let's pray. Lord, we bless you today. Two full chapters, Father. Almost a hundred verses of narrative from more than 2,000 years ago. And yet, what practical application and implication for our lives today as we try to follow you, God. Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you have been preaching to hearts. It's not my words that make a difference. It's your word that makes a difference and your spirit applying that word, enlightening our hearts and calling us to change. And so, so Lord, I pray that there might be some, even in this room right now, who would surrender to you for the first time, Lord, that they would bow the knee to you and say, I surrender it all. I'm done being king of my life. I'm done with my own throne. I'm bowing my knee to the true king today. But Lord, I would be remiss if I didn't also pray for those who have surrendered but are not currently all surrendered to you. I'm thinking of things in my life that I need to let go of. I'm thinking of things I'm sure in the lives of my friends, my brothers and sisters in here who, who are still holding on to some semblance of their throne, of their control, of their kingship. And I pray by the power of the spirit, you'd release us from those things today, Father. I pray for great surrender in this place that would lead to a heart that's passionate for worship that what we sing would not be like those who sang Hosanna on Palm Sunday only to say crucify him five days later, but for us that we would sing with our mouths and our hearts today the same thing that we will be singing forevermore. So God, use this time now as we respond and reflect. Holy Spirit, keep preaching to our hearts. Do the good work that only you can do. We love you, Father. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit and all of God's people said, amen, amen.